0: Art takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Sus Sommerfeld, and thanks for listening. So I said on the first episode that we would try to avoid any negative episodes for a while, but surprise, I lied. It's Oscar week, and my inner journalist couldn't resist a newspeg for this episode. So my guest today is a regular Jedediah Leland in the print critic sense, not the drunken nurse harasser sense. Uh, mm-hmm. He's someone who's put up with my rambling film reviews. And in the end, he's just a dime store cowgirl. He is here today to make sure his name is credited on the risky script attempting to take down a Hollywood powerhouse. But in this case, the target isn't William Randolph Hearst, it's Mank, the Oscar-nominated film about Herman Mankiewicz and the writing of Citizen Kane. Everyone is wrong, but Nathan Weinbender isn't. Thanks for coming on, Nathan.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Seth. I appreciate it. And your your reviews never were rambling. I just want to put that...
0: No, they were the just usually like a little too long. I, I have a, I have a yeah, word maybe. count problem in general. But Although
1: it's better to have too much copy than not enough. So. That's, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah,
0: yeah. So anyway, Nathan is here joining us. He is uh, the film critic, and film editor at The Inlander, the all-weekly in Spokane, Washington. And uh, it's Oscar week, so we decided to target uh, something that is Oscar-nominated. I think generally we are kind of on the same page with uh, this year's Oscar nominations. It's a very weird Oscar year with the pandemic and everything. But I think we both agree on what our favorite Oscar film is. Uh, we'll, We'll try this on a three, two... One, the sound of metal.
1: Sound of metal. Okay. Yeah. 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 You've got good taste, my friend. Yes. Uh, well, I, I should say that, I mean, going into Oscar week, and I've always said this about the Oscars is I mean, the Oscars are kind of pointless, but I'm sort of cursed forever to care about the Oscars. Right. I, I love following them and trying to guess who's going to win and who won't win, but they, they usually don't matter in the long run. Unless it's somebody that was kind of unknown before the Oscars, this kind of helps, you know, propel their career or maybe a movie that wasn't making that much money before the Oscars gets a boost at the box office, sometimes deservedly so. In the case of, you know, a movie like Parasite, right. Best Picture, which was a historic win, that was great to see. And, uh, in yeah, the and it, it, like, you saw the box you know,
0: office bounce immediately, like all of a sudden people are going to see yeah. Parasite.
1: Right away. And 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 you kind of hope that maybe that's sort of their, you know, introduction to other foreign films if they weren't familiar before. And as is the case this year, uh, Sound of Metal is probably my favorite of the Best Picture nominees, but The Father with Anthony Hopkins is is right up there too. And I like Nomadland, which it seems like going into the Oscars this, this weekend, that is the front runner. It seems like that will likely win.
0: Yeah, it seems, I don't know, it seems like the only other outside shot would maybe be Minari if people were very on board with that, but uh, yeah, it doesn't, it's not as thrilling of an Oscar year in part because nobody's been seeing any of the movies in theaters and (laughs) some of the things like it was a very weird, everybody holding everything to the last minute to try and hope that we'd get like a theater in theater season and, uh, anything before, like, I think like the latest, any of the nominated film it's in any of the big categories released was like, maybe like late October or November. It was just like nothing from early in the year.
1: No, the Academy has always had a short attention span when it comes to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this year in particular, you would think that with everybody kind of sitting at home and and watching stuff that maybe they would have remembered things from before October, but they didn't. Uh, And a lot of the films that were nominated this year in the big categories actually came out, officially came out, in early 2021, because they extended the eligibility window, and so I think that's why movies like *Minari* and *The Father* got so much acclaim, even though I think they deserve it. Right. Uh, but I think it's also because they were fresh in the minds of all the Academy voters, because those came out in you know February and March of of this year, as opposed to, to February and so March of
0: last probably. year. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Right. A- as <laughs> exactly.
0: as as an Emma Stan, I am uh, I'm <laughs> a, a little bit disappointed with some of it, but I don't. Yeah. Ah, uh, that's, that's a topic for another time. Anyway, sure. so the movie we are here to discuss today is Mank. Mank is a 2020 black and white film about Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz. The film is directed by David Fincher, and the script was written by his late father, Jack Fincher. The senior Fincher wrote the script in the 90s, and the movie was set to go into production in the late 90s following David Fincher's The Game, but that version of the movie fell through. The film eventually came to fruition with Gary Oldman in the titular role, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies, Lily Collins as Manx secretary Rita Alexander, Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst, and briefly Tom Burke as Orson Welles. It was released in theaters on November 13th, 2020, with a limited theatrical run due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. It was more officially released via Netflix shortly after, on December 4th. The film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards uh, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Oldman, Best Supporting Actor for Seafried, Best Original Score for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross who are also nominated for Soul this year, Best Cinematography for Eric uh, Schmidt, Best Production Design for Donald Gr- Graham Burt and Jan Pascal, Best Costume Design, Trish Somerville, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Gigi Williams, Kimberly Spiteri, and Colleen LaBeouf. The film was also nominated for Seven Golden Globes, but it didn't win any of those. Mank was also named one of the American Film Institute's Top 10 Movies of 2020, and in the award season, most of the Film Critics Awards and other minor awards leading up to the Oscars that Mank actually has won have either been for Production Design or or cinematography, including the top prize from the American Society of Cinematographers. Mank currently sits at 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, 90% among top critics, while boasting a much less favorable but still positive 60% among viewers. Here's a few snippets of Mank's rave reviews. Philip DeSimon in Time Out wrote, The arguments over whether Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made will rage on forever, but the greatest film about Citizen Kane and just about any other movie has definitely arrived. David Fincher's 11th film is a lavish love letter to old Hollywood in all its glory, cynicism, and wild extravagance. As noted before, noted pushover, Peter Travers, uh, for ABC, (laughs) uh, said, Mank is the most gorgeous piece of cinema you'll see anywhere. Brilliantly shot black and white by Eric Meiserschmidt, with costumes to die for by Trish Somerville and a period-authentic score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that somehow isn't defeated by the retro-mono sound. Mank is meant to match the look and feel of its era, as if it's eight decades ago and you just bought a ticket. NPR's Aisha Harris called it, quote, "...a beautiful and bold exercise that amounts to more than what might have been in lesser hands than Fincher's." And if you care at all about movie history and the intersection of politics, or you want to watch a filmmaker at the top of his craft, Mank is a must see. Johnny Olekinski for the New York Post wrote, Every scene oozes with intellect, but stops short of pretension. Adding praise of Oldman's performance, quote, Directing and editing alone cannot drum up a stellar performance. And Oldman is sublime here. His Oscar for portraying Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour was deserved, if predictable. Wow, look at how fat they made him. End <laughs> this time he creates a character nearly from scratch. Few people have a frame of reference for how Mankiewicz looked or talked, so the performance is much more real. When he spouts off Jack Fincher's witticisms, you believe the actor thought them up on the spot. Uh, Lisa Wilkinson of Vox praised the film's stance against Hollywood's self congratulatory nature. Quote If Mank is paying homage, it isn't doing so slavishly. The film is no love letter to Hollywood. The film industry loves to make movies about itself, to be sure. But if, say, a work like 2003 Best Picture winner Argo is about Hollywood saving the world, then Mank is about the exact opposite. Mank tells a story of a screenwriter for whom working in Hollywood doesn't amount to much more than taking home an easy, enormous paycheck for tossing off silly ideas. She added, What's obvious from Mank is that the movies aren't built to save anyone. They never have been. They can be transformative. They can do good in the world. They can change people's outlooks in many ways, but not simply because they're movies. Any impact a movie has is the result of an artist choosing to look past the end of their own nose and do something vulnerable, purposeful, and risky. So those are some of the lavish praises of Mank.
1: They, they made it sound like a movie I want to see and, and not the movie that I saw, but that's another matter.
0: Right. Uh, that is why you are here, sir. There were a small handful of critics who didn't buy the movie magic Mank was selling. Leonard Maltin, for example, wrote, for all its laudable efforts to capture the look and feel of Hollywood in the 1930s, including recreations of Hearst Castle and the MGM studio lot, the film is dramatically inert. He also criticized the movie for not catering to a more general audience steeped in Citizen Kane's lore. Quote, Woe to the less informed audience member, however. One almost feels the need for an annotated libretto or study guide to follow all the side trips and incidental characters stuffed into this bloated film, continuing, I'm not sure what the creators of Mank hope to achieve that hasn't been covered in other dramatizations, not to mention articles and books. Fincher is a talented filmmaker, but this vaunted subject was deserving of a much more focused blueprint. Handsome as it is, I found Mank disappointing and mostly forgettable. The A.V. Club's Ignati Vishkinetsky wrote, While Manx succeeds on certain personal terms, it fails by largely conventional means. There are parts that bear an uncanny resemblance to the kind of awards-bait middle-brow drama usually essayed by BBC-trained hacks. In its worst stretches, it is repetitive, muddled, and even dull, sagging under the thesis of its uncredited source material, Raising Cain, the notorious Pauline Kael essay that claimed Mankiewicz was the true genius behind the film. Ignati went on to write, Like Mank himself, the movie's ideas are searching for a purpose bitterly lost in a mix of funereal atmosphere and retro glitz. And finally, some critic named Nathan Weinbender at The Inlander wrote, Uh uh, What's remarkable about Citizen Kane is that it is both technically awesome and overflowing with feeling. I've seen it countless times, but whenever I return to it, I'm stunned all over again by how fresh and contemporary it seems, and how heedlessly it unfolds. Hearst famously hated Kane, and yet looking back on it, it's a remarkably empathetic portrait of a man who kept building an empire in the hopes that someone would come along and love him, all while that very empire drove away everyone he ever trusted. I don't know how Mank would feel about the movie that now bears his name, but I think he would have wanted to see the script and make some rewrites. So now that we've established that the establishment adores Mank, why is everyone wrong, Nathan?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say it's an honor to be included in the rarefied ranks of Leonard Maltin, who, by the way... Probably knows more about uh, old Hollywood and classic films than pretty much any critic that's currently working. So to hear him talk about this movie as dull is actually kind of a surprise to me. And I think I honestly think like he might be the authority in this. So you know, don't listen to me. Listen to Leonard Maltin. But everything he said is is basically what I would say. Is that and, you know, I said it in my review, is that I'm kind of a Citizen Kane nerd. I've read so much about how, you know, what happened behind the scenes of this movie, what inspired this movie, uh, the relationship between Wells and Mank, which I think could make a feature film another feature film that isn't Mank onto its own. Uh, you know, the the real life parallels that inspired the movie and all of the iconography and the inside jokes. I know about all that stuff. And I should say that uh when they announced this project and when the first images came out and they said, David Fincher's making a movie about Citizen Kane and it's going to be in black and white and it's going to come out in, you know, Thanksgiving time, right for Oscar season. I was so excited. Like this was my most anticipated movie of 2020. And so it it really bummed me out when I turned it on the night that it premiered, and was bored by it almost instantly. I mean, there was nothing in it that was grabbing me, despite the fact that this this felt like a movie that was almost tailor made for me to love. Right. Uh, and and I think we can get into the specifics of that, but I think the the basic problem with this movie is that, I mean, f- for one thing, it is unfocused. I'm I'm not really totally sure. What it's about, and it almost feels like it should have been maybe a mini series instead, because it's trying to, you know, deal with so many things in the span of two hours and and some change. Right. But also, I just don't think it has any any human feeling in it, which is not something that I expect from David Fincher. Uh, in fact, I kind of prefer him when there's no human feeling in his movies. Um, and so, yeah, it just it, it feels dead to the, you know.
0: Yeah, I think that was kind of your first point of defense is that the match with Fincher on this, it just feels strangely off. But do you want to delve into that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think the phrase I was looking for is is either dead behind the eyes or cold to the touch or, you know, when people refer to like movies as as wax museums, like that's kind of what this feels like in a way. And I think that Fincher is just the wrong match for this material at least this era of fincher i don't know what the 1990s version of mank might have looked like it might have been a totally different movie i don't know Mm -hmm. um for one thing it probably would have been shot on film and uh you know might have you know it wouldn't have had that weird digital sheen that i think you know this movie has but i wonder if david fincher would have ever been attracted to this material had his father not written it yeah. Because it seems like a personal project for him. Um, and it almost makes me feel bad criticizing it because it it's such a sweet idea that his dad worked on this script for years. It was a it was a passion project for his father, and then he died and he wanted to make it, you know, a reality. And and there's something really sweet there. But and so it makes me wish I liked the movie more. But but I can't imagine that there's anything in this that would have drawn his attention had it not had you know uh papa fincher's name yeah exactly i i just can't i can't picture him ever getting into this story uh you know if if someone off the street uh you know or some unknown screenwriter had written it i just can't picture that
0: yeah i i think it's worth pointing out that this was he he was originally going into production while his father was still alive like his father died in like I think uh 2003 or something like that. Uh, yeah. but it re- was originally going to happen with his dad there. And even that might've changed the movie just cause I think there's a, yeah. there's a reverence. I, I will say uh, the script isn't like bad or anything. It's not like it's a trash script or anything that he's just like forcing through cause his dad's name is on it. But I do feel like there may have been a reverence to the script because it's because his father passed that's like this it's this hard uh like in stone thing that you don't want to mess as yes. much with that like maybe if his dad was around and they were making it together he'd be like uh should we like rework this or like do that but when you have like now that you're at the point where David Fincher can make anything he wants it's like I'm going to make my dad's script how my dad's script is written
1: yeah and I don't know how much reverence that that he has for this era of Hollywood. Right. Um, I, I, the, the movie I kept coming back to, and I'll probably bring it up again, I'm sure, uh, is Ed Wood, because that's another film, you know, about uh, uh, how Hollywood works and, and somebody who feels like an outsider from Hollywood and is made to uh, visually and and stylistically and even tonally is meant to evoke those, that era of films. I mean, Ed Wood, the Tim Burton film uh, starring Johnny Depp, looks like the best possible version of an actual Ed Wood film. You know, it's, it's black and white and, and everyone's kind of playing it archly. And, uh, it, it just looks the part, and but that movie has so much feeling and and humanism in it, and and humor, and Tim Burton really seems to love Ed Wood and to love the films that Ed Wood made, right? Totally unironically. I think he has such a passion for that subject. I don't get any of that from Mank, and I I don't feel like Fincher. Really, I mean, maybe he responds to the character of Mank or the idea of Mank as this guy who kind of toiled in obscurity for years and, you know, never really got his due. Not that that describes Fincher's career because he's been, you know, an acclaimed filmmaker for, you know, almost 30 years now, I think. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he maybe he responded to that side of things. But I don't feel the love for this material that I think you really need to pull it off successfully i it it, i i think that it comes down to like my dad wrote this and i i want to make it which is a totally you know worthwhile endeavor but maybe somebody else should have been in the director's chair i don't know
0: yeah i mean well part of what you were saying i mean in for starters fincher's form in general is not one of warmth it's more you know His films don't, like, ooze happiness and, like, this (laughs) loving heart. It's more a cold distance and a love of the form of filmmaking. It almost seems like he, you know, it's a movie about Mank, but it really seems more of a tribute to Citizen Kane's cinematography and directing than it does to the screenwriting itself.
1: Which is ironic because this movie is about the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. Like, you know, it's it and and again, you know, it it comes down to that, where it's like, I don't think the material was strong enough going in. And on top, I mean, it's possible that it it like you said, it could have been revised along the way, uh, if if the two Finchers have been working together. But coupled with the fact that, you know, I think Fincher is more enamored of of style than he is of of human qualities which which has worked wonderfully in his other films. I and I should say I think David Fincher is one of the best filmmakers around. Like right. he's made some of the greatest films of the last 20 years. I just don't think that, that that the the match between director and material is is really solid here.
0: Yeah, you don't you don't get a warm nostalgic hug from the social network.
1: <laughs> no, and that's what makes that movie so great.
0: Right, exactly. It's like supposed to be I have a similar feeling towards Christopher Nolan generally, where it's like, I feel like his, both of them are amazing filmmakers who love making film, but care less about their characters and the things, you know, the, the relationships than they do about getting amazing shots and innovative filmmaking or, you know, tributes to other things in there or, you know.
1: But. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, Nolan put out a film in 2020 as well. Uh, he put out Tenet and that's another movie where I feel like he's going for emotion and he's going for, you know, humanity at certain points in that movie. And I, I just don't buy it. And it's like, why even bother, you know, if, if you're not going to be able to pull this off. So I could be wrong about tenant, maybe that could be another episode entirely, but uh but yeah, I, I think I think that's a, a really good comparison between uh, Fincher and Nolan.
0: hmm And you were kind of you were kind of mentioning it and we were talking about Jack's script and one of your other defenses is kind of what is this script about?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have heard that that Fincher Fincher Jr. did revise the script. I didn't read too much into it, but I know that he did work on it later on. But I I don't know, this script feels unfocused to me. The way that I verbalized it was that it buries its own lead to the point where the first time I saw this movie, because I did rewatch it again in preparation for this, the first time I watched this movie, about an hour in, I thought, what what is this movie going to be about? I mean, obviously, it's about Herman Mankiewicz. Obviously, it's about the, the making and specifically the writing of Citizen Kane. But what is it about at its core? When you look at a movie like Citizen Kane, you know what that movie's about. It is about the loneliness of of the central figure. And I'm not totally sure what the script of Mank is about in that same way. I mean, I think it's trying to be like an origin story for the movie because we see all of the things that happened in either Mank's life or in the real history of Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s And I think that's supposed to, you know, line up with a bunch of the themes in Citizen Kane. So, for instance, you see his disillusionment with the studio system. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see his disillusionment with American politics when he realizes that elections can be bought and sold. You see that, uh, you know, in his friendship with William Randolph Hearst, which, you know, uh, deteriorates over time, and his trust in Louis B. Mayer that deteriorates over time, and how all of that could have eventually inspired the character of Charles Foster Kane and the plot of the movie. But I don't think that the script ever finds focus in that idea. And it almost feels like there's just too much going on. And to, to echo what Leonard Moulton said, you kind of have to have read every textbook about this era of Hollywood to really understand what's going on. Because the movie doesn't hold your hand. The movie doesn't explain who anybody is. And so I can't imagine anybody who doesn't already know about the history of this movie, even understanding what's going on or why they should care. It feels like a very inside baseball kind of movie, but in a way that that even someone like me, who loves inside baseball Hollywood stuff, didn't find particularly engaging. And I think it's because the script is so, not necessarily thematically unfocused, but emotionally and dramatically unfocused.
0: Yeah, it's... Like it's one of those movies where if you are asked to come, you come out of it and you're like, "What was the theme of that movie?" Yeah, it's like the closest thing I came, and it was partially reading one of the, you know, reading a bunch of the reviews and stuff like that. I think maybe the closest thing to what Fincher might have trying might have been trying to do would be kind of like taking this slightly subversive takedown of Hollywood through this Trojan horse of a like tribute to the golden age and it's like Mm -hmm. oh look it's citizen kane it's all this you know because hollywood is hollywood praising hollywood in its own movies is catnip for hollywood so just being like actually all this was trash uh and just (laughs) like has got us to this ruinous place that might have been the goal but it's not the theme of the movie so it's just
1: and, and i kept like the, the idea of what is this about, uh, you know, it, it even on my second viewing, it kept coming up because I was thinking, so is this movie about the unheralded genius of the screenwriter? Like, not just of Mank, but of the, you know, the screenwriter as a figure in Hollywood. Because mm-hmm. I, mean, I think... A lot of people would agree, including, you know, two writers are obviously going to agree that that writers in, in filmmaking and in Hollywood don't get enough credit for the role that they play. Or is it about, you know, how Hollywood hasn't really changed in the 70 or 80 years since uh, this film is set? Or is it on a human level, is it about these relationships that he fostered that eventually inspired his art? I'm, I'm just not really sure what the point is, because I don't think any of those threads ever come to a point where we have sort of an aha moment as viewers or where the characters even have aha moments right which isn't something i necessarily expect i mean i i don't mind a movie that sort of ends you know on ellipses and certainly mank you know there's been that debate forever about you know who was the true mastermind behind citizen kane was it really orson wells or was it mank and i think history has proven that it was a little bit of both but I'm sure both of them were horrible to be around. I'm sure that that, the two egos that big in the same room, it must have been, you know, a a monstrous thing to witness. But, you know, I I don't know. I never really, I, I don't know if that's what the movie should have been about necessarily, but at least that relationship would have had some fire to it, would have had some some passion in it. It's it's lacking. And in fact, the scenes with Orson Wells at the end are the only ones where I th- where I thought, now this is the movie I wanted to see. Yeah. And you know, the rest of it just kind of feels flat in a way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, what, he's probably got three, four minutes of screen time in the entire movie. If that. In like yeah. a he comes
1: in and yells at, at Mank and,
0: and then is on and, the phone and, a couple times. Exits. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then there's there's tight there's a title on the screen that's like, oh yeah. And then he He eventually rescinded his uh, sole credit to uh, Mank, you know, so Mank got writing credit in the end, which is a famous kind of tête-à-tête they had.
0: Right. And I mean, you know, speaking to even some of the points you have, you know, if it's like a tribute to writers in, in Hollywood, it really, like, all the other writers in the movie are kind of, like, hacky, like, it's not like it makes anybody, any of the other Hollywood writers look good. Right even some of the characterizations like really Louis B. Mayer comes off as more of the villain in this movie than Hearst. Like Hearst is kind of like his like buddy and he's like financing some of the stuff behind the scenes, but it's like, Oh, he's maybe the money behind this, but he actually likes Mank and enjoys having him around. Even if it's as a dancing monkey, it's still like, Mm -hmm. there's actually some admiration there. Like he, Enjoys his mind, and meanwhile, Louis B. Mayer just like sucks all the time. <laughs>
1: yeah, when and Louis B. Mayer even lies to his actors and and producers and crew members because he brings them all together. It's you know the start of the Great Depression, and he says, "I'm asking all of you to take a fifty percent pay cut. This is going to save the studio." And then Mank, of course, finds that that you know Louis B. Mayer has pretty much lied to them and, and you know, uh, didn't actually need them to all do that, uh, that he he wasn't taking the same pay cut or something like that. And you also have two other threads going on here, which is not only the, you know, Hollywood tightening its belt, essentially, but you also have the gubernatorial race, the California gubernatorial race of 1934, which was between Upton Sinclair, who was sort of like the, the Democratic socialist candidate and then frank merriam who was the the incumbent republican who eventually won and we find out in the movie that it's that he won in no small part because of money from hollywood and from louis b Mayer in particular who was i think the gop chair of the california republican party and 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 Um, you know the
0: the actual the fake newsreels they kind of make in the movie were an actual thing But that also is one of the weird things about the movie is that there's not really a lot of historical accuracy in some areas where it's just like there's not really a lot of evidence that Mank was actually tied to any of this. You know, the movie suggests like, oh, he came up, he accidentally gave them the idea to do this and that he was like a kind of a big Sinclair supporter, even if begrudgingly so. And there's not the historical breadcrumbs to follow on that sense. But I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a few things where it's like the historical inaccuracies in this, in the script are like, huh. And also just that it's this big socialism theme running throughout. It has this kind of weird thing where it feels very like of 20, uh, nineteen twenty 2020. Yeah. It's something I'd really like to know that I probably don't, without looking at drafts of the screen play is how much of that was younger Fincher, maybe juicing that up because it seemed very timely now versus how was that actually all in the script in the nineties?
1: Well, and I, I kind of felt like uh, the, the fake newsreel stuff uh, to me, it almost felt like a screenwriter's device to kind of call back, uh, Citizen Kane, because Citizen Kane famously opens with a fake news reel that uh, basically explains who Charles Foster Kane is to the audience. And it's one of the most brilliant uh, screenwriting devices of that era. and uh, it does such a good job of outlining this character to you, who you are then going to see in flashback. It tells you everything about this character, how he lived, how he died all of these signposts along the way, and then it shows them to you from beginning to end. And so I thought maybe that's what the Finchers were doing is they were kind of, you know, playing into that whole idea of the fake news newsreel footage in Kane. And also the, the stuff with the uh, candidacy, the, the gubernatorial candidacy certainly has echoes of, of Kane. I mean, obviously that was a real, right. uh, you know, uh, political campaign that happened, but I think the reason it's in the screenplay And the reason that it's about political disillusionment is because that is a major theme in Citizen Kane, where Charles Foster Kane runs for public office, uh, basically elbows his way to the front of the pack because he's, I mean, it sounds kind of uh, eerily familiar. He elbows his way to the front of the pack because he is a household name already and because he has enough money to pay for a giant campaign, and then he's you know, basically kneecapped at the end because of an affair that he's having. It certainly seems like the reason those things are in the movie is not really because they explain anything that's going on with Nank as a character, but because they're nice little, you know, thematic parallels to the movie that inspired it. So, I i mean, that was my take. I don't know if that's necessarily what they're doing in there, but it it certainly adds to the kind of unfocused nature of, the screen point that we're talking right.
0: about, right? Like nothing about kind of that storyline is super essential to understanding. Like, doesn't give us any more pull back the curtain on who Mank was, really. especially since it's mostly fabricated.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I think in lieu of that, like, you know. I, one of the rules of film criticism is you're not supposed to say, well, this is the movie they should have made. You're supposed to review the movie that was made. Right. But I wonder if instead of having all of this stuff that, that just seems to designed to be like, hey, look, we read our history books, even though, as you said, they fudged some of it. What if instead of all of those scenes, they would have just had, you know, conversations between Hearst and Mank or, you know, uh, more conversations between Mank and Marion Davies. I feel like those relationships are more important to the origin of Citizen Kane than any kind of political chicanery that was going on in the background. And I kind of wish that that had been more of the focus instead of, you know, who was running for governor at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, they really uh, there's not even really a conversation between Hearst and Mank in this movie. There's not really lectures. There, there's like little piths back and forth a couple times. Mm-hmm. And then there's them monologuing each other at the very end of the movie. Right. but the whole there's Don Quixote speech. Right. The Don Quixote and the monkey grinder uh, right. follow up to that. But there's no where they are actually saying things back and forth to each other. But I mean, uh, getting to the other point on that, you mentioned that this movie could use a little bit more conversations between Marion and Mank. And I believe that is your third defense on why this movie isn't what everybody is claiming it is.
1: Yeah, and uh, obviously Amanda Seyfried is nominated for playing Marion. She got a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for this. And a lot of reviews, even negative ones, have said, you know, she's the best thing in the movie. And that's probably true. But my problem is, is that I I think that her performance is better than the, the character that they've given her. I guess I should explain Marion Davies uh, was William Randolph Hearst's lover and uh, lived with him for years. She was sort of an up-and-coming actress, worked the vaudeville circuit, I think. And then Hearst became enamored of her and they started an affair. And then she started being put in movies he was making. And a lot of people at the time uh, called it nepotism. They said that she wasn't talented enough to carry these films and she was only in them because she was sleeping with William Randolph Hearst. And she kind of became a punchline in a lot of the the Hollywood papers. And in the movie Citizen Kane, Kane's second marriage is to uh, a similar character, this this ingenue, this wannabe uh, opera singer uh, named uh, Susan Alexander. And the parallels between the two are, are very apparent and would have been very obvious to 1941 audiences who would have seen this when it first came out. And Wells for years said that Susan Alexander was not in fact based on Marion Davies, which I have a hard time believing um, because Kane is so obviously William Randolph Hearst. And so therefore you're going to make the mental jump to, well, then Susan Alexander is Marion Davies. So that apparently drove a wedge between Marion and Mank because they were friends uh, before the film came out. And that is one of the supposedly great conflicts of this story is why would Mank basically betray his friend by portraying her in the movie Citizen Kane as as this, this loser and this hanger-on who, after Kane dies, just becomes kind of a drunk has-been. It, it's a really unflattering character right. um, and is one of many tragic figures in the narrative of Citizen Kane. And That's kind of what I was hoping would happen in this movie, especially because I was hearing raves about Seyfried's performance before I saw it. And I just feel like that relationship is so undercooked. It's really frustrating because it feels like it's building some kind of confrontation or understanding and it just never comes, for me at least.
0: Yeah, well, I think part of it is they have a few scenes together that are, if not the best part of the movie, they're near the top. And then- they they basically have a almost it's almost like a meet cute when they first get together where Manx mm-hmm. drunk at basically gets hauled off to her castle by uh, his writer, new writer, who's uh, Marion's nephew. And then he wakes up and she's down filming a movie and they just have a bunch of kind of like snappy crackling dialogue back and forth yep. and even. Uh, Mank even has crackling dialogue with Hearst in this scene, and it's very it's very sharp in a way that a lot of the rest of the movie isn't. Yeah. Where it's got that like kind of of the era patter. And Siefried's Marion is very whip smart, and she's just always has like comebacks, and maybe she doesn't understand some of the things in Hearst's, you know, like, oh, I'm not supposed to say this, but generally I'm not like an idiot or you know, she's she's given intelligence in the script and in the movie.
1: An agency and agency. Right. And yeah, and that's something that's not present in Citizen Kane uh, when it comes to Susan. And uh, I also like the fact that th- there's a scene later on, and it's another kind of drunken meetup they have at Hearst Castle, where they're walking through the grounds and Hearst has his his big zoo, which uh, the is... The monkeys and know, the
0: giraffes and the elephants and...
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's, of course, some of the first images in Citizen Kane are of Kane's palace, Xanadu, uh, where I think they say they say in the newsreel it was the, uh, the largest zoo since Noah, or the largest right, yeah. collection of animals since Noah, you know, because, you know, he has this kind of biblical pomposity. And there's a scene where Mank and Marion are just wandering the grounds as this party is raging on inside. And she's just kind of talking about, you know, no one takes me seriously. And and, you know, this this industry is is stupid anyway. And Mank understands and Mank listens to her and Mank takes her seriously. And that, to me, is the best scene in the movie by far. And I think the two of them are really good in it. And the dialogue in it is really good. And it made me wish that, again, I, I keep saying this, it, it made me wish the movie was about that instead of all of these other things. And then when they finally have the the confrontation at the end, the this, the first draft of Cain has been written and they have this confrontation.
0: Right. Marion has read the draft and comes and, you know, comes out to the desert to talk to Mank. And it's, you know, there's at least three really good scenes between them up to this point. And, you know, a little like back and forth here and there. Mm-hmm. And then this scene just ends with a whimper. It's just like they won't say anything after being, you know, just sharp on each other the whole time. It's just like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll I'll do, I guess you're probably going to do it. I wish you won it.
1: Well, and I think the interesting thing in that scene is that she's more concerned about her swell being than her own, right? By the way that he's going to be portrayed through this fictional avatar in this screenplay. And Mank says to Marion, he says, if this movie ever gets made, I hope you'll forgive me. And then she says, well if it never gets made i hope you'll forgive me right. which i think is to suggest that that she and Hearst could potentially stop the production of it but i also i i don't know i don't feel like that response is really earned but she she doesn't even really have a reaction she she just kind of shows up and says wow that script is is something else and right. that's kind of it it's just a really bizarre truncated scene it it feels like something got cut out of it along the way. That should be like the emotional climax of the movie. And instead the emotional climax is this drunken soliloquy that he has, you know, a couple scenes later.
0: And and it should be noted that like leading up to that final scene where it just kind of goes out flat, not only like every character is bringing up to Mank, why are you doing this to Marion? Everyone like, you know, uh, her nephew's doing it. His uh, secretary's doing it. Mm -hmm. Everybody's like, Dude, why are you... Why are you being so harsh to your almost, buddy? And they don't... Yeah,
1: and the movie doesn't follow up on it.
0: To make the parallel, it's like if Citizen Kane didn't tell you what Rosebud was at all. Not even, like, hinting. <laughs> like, it's just like... They're basically building to this being, like, the Rosebud reveal. Like, why are you doing this? And then they're like... Yeah. Eh. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, I I'm just was I
1: writing mean, a movie. I mean, it, you could have had... Even if this isn't totally historically accurate, maybe you could have had some kind of push and pull between Mankiewicz and Wells about how they're going to portray Marion. And maybe speaking of of Marion Davies, I mean, maybe we should bring up the other film that's been made about the making of Citizen Kane.
0: I, I was going to do that.
1: I, she's in that, too. Yeah. In
0: the other movie notable movie that's uh, been made about the making of Citizen Kane is RKO 281 which was an HBO movie made for TV HBO back mm. in the nineties, uh, late nineties. And it is basically, instead of from Mank's perspective, it's from Orson Welles driven perspective with, uh, Liev Shriver as Orson Welles and John Mankovich as now I'm getting the names <laughs> as Mank- <laughs> Mankovich 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 as Mankovich and then, uh, Melanie Griffith, uh, plays Marion Davies in RKO-281, yeah. and she's also great in the Marion Davies role. But it's like mm-hmm. watching RKO-281 and watching Mank is very weird. We we both watched them in the lead-up to this because they are completely different versions of this this same story. And speaking specifically to Marion before we dive off, Nellie Griffith is more closer to how... Uh, Suzanne is in Citizen Kane. But she's even, like, mm-hmm. she's a little... She she catches on to things. She's not, like, a ditzy, like, yeah nothing character. She's, like, smart enough to, like... She realizes, like, Hearst is, Hearst's business is in trouble before he really is willing to accept it and yeah. things like that. But, uh yeah, the RKO-281 parallels to this movie are very strange because just even the basic, like... The entirety of Mank is probably 12 seconds. It's like a one scene, 12 second thing in Mm -hmm. RKO 281. And then Mank is like the buddy to Orson Welles for the rest of the movie. But I'll I'll let you (laughs) dive in. Well,
1: another weird thing about the about RKO 281 is that, uh, the the Mank, the, the character of Mank, at least, is replaced by Wells in many cases. So in real life, Mankowitz was friends with with William Randolph Hearst and was a regular at his parties. In RKO 281, it's Wells who is going to the parties and hobnobbing with Hearst. And by most accounts, they never met. At least they never met before Citizen Kane was made. There's an apocryphal story or possibly apocryphal story that Hearst and Wells rode in the same elevator uh, shortly after Citizen Kane came out. And, and Hearst hated the movie so much or at least hated the idea of the movie so much. I don't know if he ever actually saw it, that he at one point offered RKO like a million dollars or something like that uh, to destroy every print of the movie before it could come out. Uh, and all those and points so are
0: in RKO281, the elevator, yeah, the destroying so it's, of the prince. It's in,
1: yeah, it's interesting to see Wells kind of, I mean, it makes more sense to have Wells be you know the lead character in this story. But in RKO 281, Mank, as played by by John Malkovich, is almost like the like the guiding hand of authority. He's almost like the level-headed reasonable one. And by all accounts, that was not true. And it's certainly not the way that he's portrayed in Mank. You know, he's the rabble rouser. He's the drunk. He's supposed to be drying out in this, you know, this cabin by the sea. And instead he's, you know, he's drinking every day and and cranking out this, you know, 300 page epic screenplay that Wells is going to have to, you know, uh, chop down. So it is interesting to see both of those stories play out uh, in different ways and be uh, a historical, yeah, in different ways too. It's
0: like in RKO 281, like Mank tries to stop drinking, and Orson Welles is like, "No, keep drinking." And <laughs> it, it's just lots of things. Like, I mean, RKO 281 is more about that kind of the. Uh, it's almost less about the making of Citizen Kane and more the like, can we release Citizen Kane or is Hearst going to stop yeah. us? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's more about that power struggle. Uh, but which
1: that's and that's that's the thing that I think because I wondered this, like, what is it about this about this movie, about Citizen Kane that that uh, fascinates me so much? I mean, it's fascinated millions of people. I mean, you know, it's it's generally considered the greatest American film, but I think it is all of that behind the scenes stuff that adds so much to it because it is a movie of its time. It's very much about what was going on in America and in Hollywood in the 1940s. But it's also a film that was so ahead of its time in in terms of technique, in terms of storytelling, even in terms of the acting. I mean, I have friends that will say, "I don't really watch old movies because the acting is too stagey or too hammy. And they would probably they might say that about Citizen Kane, too, but I feel like the acting in this is is different than the the acting you would see in other, you know, sort of, uh, even other RKO pictures at the time so it like there is that tension going on between uh material and sort of what made the material happen which I think is why people keep trying to tell the story of the making of Citizen Kane because it's so inherently fascinating mm-hmm. just the idea that you would make a movie that is a thinly veiled you know biography of somebody that was at the time one of the most powerful people in the world and to really make it this, this tragedy about this person whose soul had been tarnished and his childhood lost, and he never found the love that he wanted. And then that actual figure tried to destroy the movie. Right. You know, that that's such a great story unto itself. And, uh, Mank doesn't really have any of that. Uh, I mean, if you want to see a good movie about the making of citizen Kane, I guess, watch the HBO one. It kind of depends on great, but it depends on what you're,
0: yeah, it, it does that. RKO 281 does have a fair, very, like, made-for-TV movie feel. I will say that if you're yeah, thinking of it checking does. it out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, even, you know, if you take it to a modern parallel, it's, it's like, the closest movie, like, just in terms of, like, that I can think of recently that would be akin to, like, what Citizen Kane is doing would be, like, uh, the Dick Cheney biopic, where it's just, like, here's a powerful mm. person who's still alive, and, like, we're going to show how they might've been like had some good morals at some point, but now they're just a horrible monster. And it's just like, but nobody would be like, Oh, well the president's going to stop in and like, not let that be released. But like, yeah, right. it's just like well, the different eras. Remember,
1: remember Oliver Stone made his George W. Bush movie while Bush was still in office. And that was like the selling point at the time. Right. And it would be like that if, if, if he made that movie and George W. Bush called up Oliver Stone and said, I'll give you the entire budget of the movie if you destroy the print and never release it. Right. Like that would be insane if that happened. but And that really did happen back in 1941. Like that's, and I, I, and I've always felt it's less because Hearst would have been embarrassed because I mean, he had more power than Orson Welles did in the, in the long run, you know, I mean, at, or at the time he did, I, I think it's because I assume he saw the movie and he obviously read the script. I think it's because that movie touched a nerve and it, I think it's because that movie really captures, I mean, if you read anything about Hearst, you know, that shortly after, you know, that era after the forties, his empire did sort of crumble a little bit and he did kind of, kind of die unloved and, and alone. I mean, I think he was still with Marion, but she was kind of a hanger on at that point. Yeah. I think, I think that movie touches something human At the core of William Randolph Hearst are people like him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think Mank touches a similar nerve with really any of the people in it, which is such a bummer. Yeah.
0: And I mean, going, you know, talking about how like RKO is 281 is all about the like blocking. And Mank boils that down to a little thing. And then the line you mentioned from Marion at the very end. And it's just there's never any, again, like even if they'd forced in some sort of reason why he attacked her. Like, if it was had to do with when they did the, like, uh, when the scene where she's leaving the studio and it's just like, I can't go back because I've already made my exit. And if they wanted to make this more of a political film and have, again, I don't want to, like, fantasy book the thing, but if you just have, like, him be like, you let down the state of California when you just for your ego and like that stung at him and it's just like now your ego deserves a sting back or something like that
1: yeah it's just it's 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 curious the way they handle it is uh the last thing i'll say i I, but i agree with you i wish that the that the role matched the intelligence of amanda seifert's performance i even like what she does with With uh, the accent, because she has this kind of, you know, this Brooklyn accent, and it kind of comes and goes based on who she's talking to and who she's comfortable around. Like she she has a lot of good, you know, uh, details. And it seems like a very perceptive and empathetic performance in a movie that is kind of neither of those things, at least in terms of, you know, the the emotional states of the characters that are Mm in it. All
0: right. Continuing on, what would be your uh, fourth defense uh, against make?
1: Uh, well, I wanted to talk about the style of it, mm-hmm. uh, the, the visual style, the, the way that it's made, because I think that's getting a lot of of attention. And as you said uh, in the intro, it's the production design and the costumes and the cinematography that's getting a lot of the awards. Yep. And it's possible it will win some Oscars for that as well. And I like the style of this movie in theory, but I don't think it works. Uh because not only is it shot in black and white, it's shot digitally, by the way, and you can you can really tell that it's shot digitally. Right. Um, it has this kind of tinny uh, monaural audio mix that is uh, clearly designed to make it sound like a 1930s or 1940s movie. Uh, you even have the fake cigarette burns in the upper right corner of, of the screen, and, and it almost looks like like the reels are jumping as if the, the reels are changing. Um, and I don't know if that's supposed to also be a callback to the cigarette burn gag in uh, Fight Club, another uh, Fincher movie, but I might be overthinking that. The problem, though, is that I don't think the movie looks like a 1940s movie. I don't think that the cinematography really matches that. Like you said, the dialogue sometimes does. It has that kind of like His Girl Friday back and forth banter to it. But for the most part, I just kind of thought that there's some good blocking in this movie and there's some good use of shadow and light. But for the most part, I thought it it looked kind of flat to me, like – a lot of it was maybe shot on a green screen and, and messed with, you know, in post-production. And I was actually looking around for an explanation to this. And I want to quote review I read at a website called thefilmexperience.net. And they said, in response to Fincher trying to, you know, duplicate the look and feel of a 1940s film, Mm -hmm. they said, the studio lighting of yore has been replaced by digital sharpness, a metallic tinge that makes even the hot desert sun look cold. It's shockingly modern filmmaking covered in the pretext of pastiche, a pastiche so flimsy, its transparency feels more purposeful than accidental. So I thought that said it better than any, said it better than I could have said it. And also. By the way, it's a mostly favorable review. So I thought it was actually like kind of a really stinging criticism in the middle of an otherwise favorable review. But yeah, I again, I want to go back to Ed Wood, which was also shot in black and white. was obviously shot on film. It was made in, you know, 93 or 94. But I think that movie has a visual warmth to it and a depth to it that I don't think this movie has. I, it feels kind of cutesy to me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, isn't it isn't it fun that we're putting little cigarette birds in the upper right-hand corner? And it's like, well, not really. I don't see what that adds to the movie. I don't feel like I'm immersed in a 1940s film right. really uh, at any point. It feels like people playing dress-up in a way.
0: Talking about not elevating it, it seems like it's kind of trying to be a tribute over anything, but like doesn't totally understand all the things speaking to just that basic uh, the look of it it having watched you know Citizen Kane recently in the run-up to this as a in addition to another rewatch of Mank there's like a brightness to Mank that in the yeah. lighting that does not match up with Citizen Kane and that's right. probably that digital effect you were talking about where it just it doesn't seem there's, it, it doesn't seem like they're the fam- same film stock or anything like that where mm-hmm. you can do that, but this movie just isn't nailing it. If it's try- if it's right. actually trying to be, this looks just like Citizen Kane, it doesn't look just like Citizen Kane.
1: And that's clearly what they're going for because it's filled with visual illusions, direct visual illusions to Kane. I mean, early on, there's a shot where uh, Mank is so drunk that uh, bottle falls out of his hand and onto the floor and you know if you've seen Citizen Kane you know that's uh, a call out to the the snow globe scene at the very beginning of the movie. The shots of the, the zoo that I mentioned earlier look like they're right out of, you know, the, the zoo in Xanadu at the beginning of, of Citizen Kane. So there's all kinds of, of callbacks and uh,
0: even even like the writer's room kind of looks like the news like some of the scenes in like the writer's certain. room look sort of like the newspaper yeah. Uh, scenes and shot similarly but yeah it doesn't totally like land but
1: and it and it might have been a mistake on their part because the, the guy that shot Citizen Kane is named Greg Toland and he used a technique uh, known as deep focus so that every inch of the screen is in full focus which was a really difficult thing to do on 1940s film cameras and Every shot of Citizen Kane is breathtakingly beautiful. Even shots where it's just two people standing on the screen talking to each other. Wells and Toland found a way to shoot those scenes so that there's there's a playfulness and an artfulness. And you really feel like every single shot in that movie was thought about meticulously and the way that they use matte paintings to make it seem like rooms that you're in are way bigger than they actually were. There's so many amazing special effects in that film that all had to be done in camera and with old school techniques. Obviously, it was 1941. I almost wish that that if you're going to ape the style of the film, you got to go all in. I also don't think that you're doing yourself any favors by duplicating the visual style of one of the most stunningly shot films of all time. Like you're just going to end up looking either like a bad pastiche or it's just everyone's going to be thinking the whole way through. I wish I was watching Citizen Kane instead, which is what I was thinking.
0: Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I I agree with that. I mean, I guess I have a slightly higher opinion of the movie than you do, uh, Mink specifically, mm-hmm. not Citizen Kane, um, where I just there are elements of it almost it's not that i love them as much as i like sort of begrudgingly respect them some of the uh some of the shots i think there are good shots in here i the style might not be right but i still think there's good cinematography and some of the ways the script works it it does kind of work in a little bit of a parallel tribute to kane but it's again i'm not saying it's oscar worthy as it is getting all these things but i am not quite as down on it and i think part of that might be that i am not as high of a citizen kane fan as you are and i feel like there i feel like there's if you are already up at the like top echelon of citizen kane fandom this movie definitely has a much lower floor for you
1: that is true i and well i want to say about about cinematography, it pains me to say that because, again, I think in terms of directors working today, you go into a Fincher production knowing it's going to look dynamic, right. right? Like, all of his movies are shot really well. And I wouldn't say this movie is shot poorly. No. Or, I, there, there are parts of it that I do think look bad, and I think it's because of that, that digital flatness that we were talking about. But there are other shots, especially the shots inside that, that cabin that he's convalescing in, I, that whole space, I think, is shot really beautifully with the the really harsh kind of noir-like shadows and, and the the sunlight kind of cutting through the windows at him.
0: Right, but like as you as you're saying, nobody would say this is the best shot Fincher movie or in no. the top five. No. Or
1: no, well, and I even think like looking at his work uh, on uh, the his other one of his other Netflix productions, Mindhunters. Which remind Hunter was it singular? I know. Which remember. was set in the nineteen seventies and looks like it. It has kind of a grungy, grainy quality to it. And you know, you really feel like you're in the era that it takes place in. And I never really quite felt that with this. And I think that's what they were trying to go for. So kind of a miss for me. But uh more movies. I'd like more movies in black and white though. Yeah. I'll take anything in black and white.
0: Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I agree with you that it doesn't often feel It feels like it's trying to be in the period, but it doesn't often feel like it's actually in the period. I think there's maybe a couple of the diner scenes, I think, in Hearst Castle feel like of the well, first off, they feel kind of parallel to Citizen Kane and of the era. But a lot of the other stuff, it just could be any time. And
1: yeah. Yeah. Another uh, another sequence that I actually really like, because I don't want to be totally down on this movie, even though I don't like it. You don't like it. Uh, but yeah, but uh, the the sequence in um, at the, the gala during the election on election night, mm-hmm. I like the way that shot, too. And they he even uses some interesting, you know, uh, the way he uses shadow and montage and, and you know, putting one image atop Transposing another. Transposing.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, that does look like very 1940s. Um, so I like I like stuff like that. I don't know if I necessarily want the whole movie to be like that because that might be overkill. But I do like the way that 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 was shot and edited and and put together. Mm -hmm.
0: And I guess trailing into the fifth and final point that you have of defense against Mank.
1: Yeah, the question that I, the the main question I asked, other than what is this really about, is who is this for? Who is this movie made for? Because as I said earlier, it's an inside baseball movie. It is not designed for people that have no idea what Citizen Kane is because they're going to be lost from frame one of this. But I also think that if you know a lot about Citizen Kane, like somebody like Leonard Maltin, I don't know if there's much here for you to latch onto because one, it doesn't really tell you anything you didn't know about, the, about Citizen Kane as a film, but it also doesn't really illuminate any of the people that were involved in it in a particularly interesting or new way. And it almost makes me think that that, you know, if Mankiewicz is an interesting enough character or figure to inspire a biopic, he kind of deserved a better one than this. I mean, there are also these, something we haven't talked about, is there are these scenes where you kind of find out through other people the gracious and selfless things that Mank has done for them. Like, right. uh, you know, his his live-in housekeeper, and there's also the uh, the screenwriter who you know, has suicidal ideations and and Mank is trying to help him and, and is ultimately not successful. Right. I think scenes like that are, are interesting and I, I almost think maybe there should have been more of them or those should have, you know, right. carried more weight. And in that case, it would have worked as a character study. But, uh, you know, I just, yeah, I just don't know who this movie was intended for. Not that every movie should be made with a specific audience in mind, but this one in particular, I think, is kind of baffling because you have to know so much about Hollywood history so that you understand all the shorthand. It's like, what did Malton say that you almost wish you had like uh, like libretto with like annotations? Yeah. I I kind of needed that, too. And I know quite a bit about the history of this. So, right. It's yeah, very that's much my main takeaway.
0: Yeah, it's not for casual. It's definitely not for casuals because like you would no. not get a ton of the references. You at least have to have seen Citizen Kane once or even if you like this movie, I think like it would max out at like a three out of five star movie if you just had no reference point. And uh, then it's not for Citizen Kane nerds like yourself because you like aren't know enough and you're like, no, it's almost like like the ideal person would be like a 20 year old like film nerd who is just getting into things but hasn't read up and like you're just starting to get into like loving movies and it would be like it hits that sweet spot where you're like ah, oh, this is more of that movie that i've been told is very good and then i've, I've watched once and maybe but don't, don't you think that don't you I, I don't think know. that some, I'm, I'm just, someone in
1: that camp would be still so confused about
0: i'm just the, trying to
1: so grasp at on straws
0: hypothetical straws for it i mean
1: I mean, you're kind of proving my point in a way. Like, I mean, that's if that is the intended audience, that is such a narrow, you know, audience that like. Right. Yeah. I'm just yeah. I think I'm confused as to who would, you know.
0: Well, it seems like I mean, it because it's getting lots of critical acclaim and things like that, it seems like it's for the people that are just like pre baked to do this. So like film people who like Fincher and like black and white movies and like Citizen Kane and are just like, I'm going to be on board with this. Like just like give the extra buy in and kind of don't come in clean slate and are just, you know, just are willing to accept it because you, you mentioned how it's so in your wheelhouse. It's the people that are like, no, this thing that, Maybe get a few hesitations, but they're like, no, this is in my wheelhouse. I'm going to find I'm going to suss out the good things and ignore any shortcomings.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's how I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I, I was so ready. Like this, this movie had me eating out of its hand and yet it couldn't, it couldn't engage me. And it's, it's funny because. Right around the time that I was watching this, I had a friend that was watching it, too. And he was texting me saying, like, what do you think of Mank? And I was like, ah, you know, I'm about, you know, an hour and 15 minutes in and it still hasn't hooked me and I'm not really into it. And he kept telling me, you know, I actually really like it. I like how he, he kind of said basically the extent of it was he felt like it was it was conflict free enough that he kind of enjoyed how chill it made him feel. And I was like, well, that's kind of my problem with it is the history of this film and the history that it's dealing with and the main character are such tumultuous figures that you shouldn't have a movie this placid about all of that stuff that's raging on. Like you need more feeling in it. And then he he texted me the next day and said, he actually isn't really sure if he liked it or not. He was just really stoned when he watched it. So <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe that's the way. Maybe that's the. I watched it sober. So maybe that was my problem. Maybe
0: hang, hang in with Mank is, uh, you know, (laughs) a little bit more of a thing. I mean, like, you mentioned how they kind of, like, sprinkle in, like... The movie never even really, like, takes it... Not that every movie should take a stance, but it's, like, a little bit unsure of, like, what it wants you to think of Mank. And, like, even the two things you mentioned, like the uh, saving, like, refugees from Germany and trying to stop the guy from committing suicide... Mank like actually did sponsor a bunch of refugees. He didn't sponsor a whole town like it like they're like, yeah, it's yeah. a whole town of people that are just there. And it's it's one of those things where you're like, that seems a little weird that a writer would be able to just like sponsor a whole town of refugees. It's one of those just kind of like weird moments in the movie. And then the yeah. like suicide thing is entirely fabricated because that mm-hmm. whole character of the guy who the DP who ends up being the director on all those is just not a real person. Um, oh, that's
1: right. He was a, yeah, he was a DP, not a, a screenwriter, but I mean, I think that that, that character is sort of like a composite, you know, kind of a symbol for all of the people that were toiling behind the right. scenes and, you know, weren't getting paid enough. And, you know, were basically being abused. I mean, if you read about the conditions oh, of the for sets sure. back then for everybody, it was terrible. Like, I understand what that character represents, but um, it 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 is kind of a confusing little thing where you're like, okay. So, I also don't think that a movie should necessarily take a stance, but I agree with you that a movie, uh, or or the people making a movie, should at least have an attitude about right. uh, the characters that they're writing about, or about the era, or about you know the the subject matter. And you're right, this doesn't really have an attitude beyond, uh, well, sure was an interesting. And, you know, complex figure. I mean, that's kind of it. And it it certainly doesn't have an attitude about Orson Wells. I mean, no, the barely way there. That Wells is handled in this is really strange and almost seems to fit with the you alluded to it earlier, with the the Pauline kale the, the famously debunked Pauline kale essay. It almost kind of goes along with that narrative. And you know, I mean Orson Wells has been the subject of so many things that I don't necessarily think he needs to be in this movie all that much. But I think he would have provided a nice counterpoint to Mank. I mean, their relationship seems like it was really interesting. Right. And we have yet to get, you know, the definitive fictionalized narrative version of that relationship.
0: Right. And I mean, even kind of talking to the point that you were saying about having an attitude towards characters, if we're bringing up another movie that's Oscar nominated right now is we've talked about this before via text, but promising young woman has a lead character Mm -hmm. that is, you know, you're not sure if you're supposed to like her or like be scared of her or things like that. But there's at least a stance of like, they very much know that they are doing that with the character and you feel like they know it throughout the entire movie.
1: Correct. Yeah. And that's a great example because You know, uh, well, and I think there are are great characters like that throughout cinema. I mean, you know, look at most of Scorsese's films. You know, I I think that that you can feel conflicting things about about a character in in any of his movies uh, or, you know, the protagonist, a promising young woman. But understand the attitude of the filmmaker that's that's driving that character. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is missing from this movie. I would assume that Fincher likes Mank as a character because I don't think he would have necessarily made an entire movie and devoted years of his life to trying to get it made if he didn't like Mank. But again, I mean, I just feel like it's the, the first thing we talked about. I just don't think that passion comes through in in the movie. I mean, even looking at, the, at RKO 281, the HBO film that we were talking about, it is a, you know, it's a pretty boilerplate made for cable movie. But I get the sense that the people that made that really love Citizen Kane and really love the people that they're playing, even if they are playing, you know, not totally accurate versions of those characters. Like there's there's a snap and a sense of of fun in that movie that I think is missing in Meg, even though they're trying like hell in certain places to make you think that there's a playful snap to it.
0: Yeah, I, I will say I feel like this is the point to also mention when we're talking about who is this for. I feel like we can't go a whole podcast about this movie and not discuss how Gary Oldman is supposed to be playing a 30 and 40 year old, thirty <laughs> like a guy in his 30s and 40s. And it seems weird throughout, like from the very start, because his wife is so much younger than him in like yeah. a, even weird for the like time or like even if this was like a, a you know, age gap romance it seems about the same right. as like between marion and hearst like not that mm-hmm. much farther off between the two but really oldman is playing is in his 60s and playing a guy who's supposed to be in his like late 30s early 40s
1: yeah well i i did think about bringing that up but i realized that uh i would be kind of hypocritical because uh i was a big fan of judas and the black messiah and of the two uh performances in that by Daniel Kaluuya and uh, Lakeith Stanfield, who are also nominated for Oscars this year. And Kaluuya will probably win. But they're, you know, a good 10, 15 years older than the characters that they're playing, the real life characters, Mm -hmm. the, the, the people, the real life people they're playing. And yet, which I didn't know when I watched the movie. And I didn't realize that, I mean, they probably said it at some point, but it didn't click in my brain that Fred Hampton was, you know, 21 or 22 when he died and daniel kaluuya is my age uh not 21 and 22 and and yet i believed that character it it didn't really you know uh he didn't seem like he was ancient well i mean yeah
0: it's also partially because there's there's a little bit there's a lesser division between a 60 year old and a 40 year old and like a 20 year old and a 30 year old
1: but i also want to say that i didn't really think about that like i didn't know how young like i think gary oldman is Older now than Herman Mankiewicz ever was. Like I think that Mankiewicz died in his fifties, right? And, yeah. But if you go back and look at pictures of oh yeah, of that, Herman Mankiewicz, that is fair. That he they look rough. Yeah, Mank. If you look at a picture
0: of him, he looks like he could probably be about the same age. But it's just if you're watching, there's specifically one point when it's the Orson Welles confrontation at the very end of the movie, mm-hmm. where like Orson Welles is like, "At your age, you'd be justified of wanting out." And Mank replies, I'm 43, but that's very understanding. And like, it's such a jarring line if you are <laughs> like, especially if you are a casual film goer and you're like, wait a second. Oh, yeah. Time out. This guy was supposed to be 43 the whole time. Yeah. Like, even yeah. for like an alcoholic who's not in good shape, in that, you do not buy that like. And also, I feel like it would have changed some of the things because, like, a lot of the Mank dynamic is like, "Uh, I'm kind of, like, old and washed up. And if he had seemed like he was, like, 40, that would be, like, more of a conflict than if you're, like, 60
1: and, like... That's a good point. It would have made a little more sense because, yeah, the whole way through the movie, you are kind of thinking like, oh, he's, you know, he's been doing this for years. So yeah, he must be like near retirement age. And it's like, no, actually he's, because I think in the, in the flashback, because also, I mean, the structure of this movie, we talked about how kind of all over the the shop it is in terms of its, you know, thematic focus, but it's, it's, I think it's supposed to be structured like Citizen Kane right. where you have- kind of this runner that's set in present day and then it flashes back and forward again. Although it's obviously much more elegantly handled in in Citizen Kane. Uh, I think in the flashbacks of this movie, it's supposed to be like 1930 and Gary Oldman doesn't look any different in those flashbacks as he does in present day. They they make him a little more unkempt, you know, in the 1941, 1942 parts of the movie. But I don't know if they should have like done the Irishman thing and like digitally de-aged him, but... Yeah, maybe if they had cast a younger actor and then made him look, pardon the pun, like an old man uh, later on, right? It might have made more sense, and then those early sequences might have, you know, popped a little uh, bit more. A little more, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that I don't think Oldman is terrible in this movie. No, no, I don't uh,
0: think he's. I think I think he. I think he, but but I think he does a be good job. To nominated for but... an
1: Oscar, come on, like no way. He's given better performances like this in movies where he wasn't even nominated. Yeah. Like go back and watch, you know, *Sit in Nancy* or *Prick Up Your Ears* or uh, something. He was nominated for *Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy*. He's so good in those movies, and yeah, for him to also for him to win the Oscar for *Darkest Hour*. Like, it's just I don't know. It, basically, the running theme here is that the Oscars are a farce. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that that's the uh, thematic uh, capper to this episode. <laughs> uh, we are. Talking Except about this it, well
1: they're not a they're not a farce when Citizen Kane wins. Uh which only won, won Oscar, one Oscar, but uh Mank but one was, was to Mank. So yes. I think that got the co yeah, the co writing
0: uh Oscar credit. That's right. Yeah. Spoiler alert, the end of the movie. <laughs> uh if you've listened this far and you haven't watched Mank, uh I mean you're making the case to not watch it. But uh
1: Yeah, or well watch Citizen Kane regardless. Yeah, just watch it. Mean, even if you've seen it before, watch it
0: good. It's so it's all on Same. HBO right now. It's easy easy access. Uh Perfect. But uh yeah, well thank you. Uh, I think you made an impassioned case uh for your anti-Mank so. and uh <laughs> f- for your sake, I hope it does not win uh somehow win all the Oscars even though that would be really weird if it did. Yeah, I
1: don't think it will.
0: It is kind of weird mentioning it cuz like pre-release it was like, "Oh, this is just going to win all the Oscars." Like there is a little <laughs> bit of a cooling that's even happened since it came out cuz it was just like in this weird movie year, it's like, well, obviously there's nothing super here. Super here, and here's this movie about Sis and Kane, directed by David Fincher, starring Gary Oldman, and everybody's like, well, just like make lock in all the Oscars right now. And it yeah. and it is it has not kept that momentum, but it's still uh, kept enough momentum to garner ten nominations or whatever. I said
1: it's yeah, it's the most nominated movie, uh, which uh, because of that cooling that was going on. I was kind of surprised that it was the most nominated. Right. Um, but what are you going to do? Hollywood. Hollywood loves to nominate movies about Hollywood. They don't necessarily like to award movies right. about Hollywood. Sometimes they sometimes
0: they award them and thing. then take them back because somebody misread something.
1: <laughs> exactly. It happens. But uh, yeah, I don't think this will win any major awards. It could win in some of the technical categories. could win but,
0: cinematography and production um, design, but that's probably could it. Win. We'll see. Well, we will see uh, within the week, uh, and then this mm-hmm. episode will be aged, but you can still enjoy it. So, I think that covers everything. <laughs> it's timeless, yeah, it's it's timeless, just like Citizen
1: Kane. It, it, this is the Citizen Kane of podcasts. This is not
0: the right? Citizen Kane of podcasts. <laughs> I'm gonna nip that one right off oh, the okay. bat. Okay, fair uh, enough. Like <laughs> anyway, uh, is there anything you would like to plug on your way out the door, Nathan? Um anything to watch, what, anything to read. People can find your stuff at uh, the inlander.
1: Yeah, inlander.com all my stuff is there. Uh Your Mank review
0: is there. Uh, you can read it.
1: Yes, I I plugged Citizen Kane earlier, not that that needs any plugging, but oh, you know what I'll do? I'll plug some unheralded uh Orson Welles films. Okay, like how that. about that? Uh because after Citizen Kane, he just had a hell of a time trying to get anything made. It it, it really was like the case of somebody peeking at their very first film, you know, at, at 23, 24 years old, however he was. Um, but I would say if you haven't seen uh, The Magnificent Ambersons, which is his, you know, famously uh, truncated follow-up to Citizen Kane, uh, it's excellent despite the fact that it was uh, butchered in editing. Uh, I would also say check out Chimes at Midnight, which is his movie about uh, Falstaff. Uh, from uh, the Shakespeare plays and Orson Welles himself plays Falstaff and it's great and and gritty and weird. It's such an odd movie. Uh, And also if you've never seen his kind of meta documentary F for Fake, uh, that is a really cool ahead of its time kind of, uh, it's almost like a, a magic trick, like a sleight of hand trick as a movie because there are scenes that you're watching that you think are real, and then you find out they're not. And the whole thing is kind of a treatise on on frauds and, and hucksters, and the movie's kind of fraudulent itself. It's excellent. And, of course, his uh, recently finished movie, The Other Side of the Wind, which is on Netflix, that sat unfinished for like 40 years or something and finally came out on Netflix a couple years ago. All of those are really good, and you should watch all of those instead of Mink.
0: There you go. Uh well mm. thank you again for uh coming on to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a long been a long time coming.
0: Yes, yes. It, it's planning out podcasts is fun <laughs> times. Yeah, fun yeah. times everybody. Behind the scenes. Just lots of texting people and being like, now, huh? No. No, no, maybe, maybe next week. No, no, uh, the Oscars are coming up. Let's do it now. So, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks to anybody who's listening. And remember, even if everyone else mocks it, love the stuff you love. <laughs>